Jesus, your word is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. You make us to lie down in green pastures, and that is truly the time that we have right now in your word, where your sheep can eat and feed upon you, our very source of life, Jesus. You are the word of God. And as we study your word, I pray that our souls would not hunger for anything except you, that you would satisfy us alone, that all the riches in the world could be offered to us in this moment and we would choose you instead. Jesus, your, uh, your word, Lord, it has a specific thing for all of us in here, a specific message. Uh, Lord, we don't want to miss it. So I pray, Jesus, that you would open up our ears, you would open up our hearts, you, God, would hear our prayers right now and that you would speak to our hearts and bring a ministry of comfort and exhortation to us right now from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. We are in Genesis chapter 22 as we've been going verse by verse through Genesis. And last week we studied the glorious fellowship, which was Abraham's obedience to the Lord and sacrificing his own son. And we studied that whole portion of scripture and it was incredibly powerful. And this week we pick up where we left off, but I want to tell you this, the title of the sermon is called, Whose Mountain Is This Anyway? Whose Mountain Is This Anyway? And so I want to start with a question, what is your favorite mountain? Just shout it out. What'd you say? Long's Peak. Lame. Just kidding. <laughs> no one else is going to get lame. What else? What's your favorite mountains? Come on, guys. Vale Mountain? Oh, okay. All right. Yes. All right. Out in Carbondale. All right. No more favorite mountains? Horsetooth Mountain. Pikes Peak. All right. Got to, from Colorado Springs, you got to represent the, the peak. All right. All right. So... Why don't mountains get cold in the winter? Because they have snow caps. <laughs> Boo, are you booing me? Are you actually booing me? Your own husband and pastor? Just kidding. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to be talking a lot about mountains today. So I did a little bit of study this week, and I found out that the study of mountains is called orology. I had no idea, but now we are good. After today, you are going to be orologists, all right? Uh, did you know that the 50 largest mountains are all in Asia? I never knew that. Uh, also, do you know in Montana, you can rent a mountain for 45 bucks a day, an entire mountain you can rent. So if you need a mountain for some business or something, actually it's for skiing, but yeah, you can rent a whole mountain. You're the only one. You can get take a helicopter and ski on it. 45 bucks per person per day. I thought that was pretty cool. So we're going to talk about mountains today, and it's, it's, it's going to blow your mind. It blew my mind. And so we're going to start, uh, we're going to back up a little bit in our scripture. We're going to start in 22, verse 11, Genesis 22, verse 11. And we're going to go through 19. It says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. Remember, the state, the state of, of events right now is that Abraham has the knife in his hand, about to plunge it 
into his son Isaac in obedience to the Lord because he believes in God's promises. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, calls him from heaven and says, Stop. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, then blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. And you'll remember Beersheba from our study a couple weeks ago about church. Uh, so that's where his church is, basically. It's where he likes to go to church, so he's going back down there. So let's start with this uh, scripture here, and let's kind of unpack it and see what the Lord has for us. He says, For now I know, Jesus tells him, that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What he's basically saying here is, Abraham, you are completely surrendered to me. And I know that. And now you know it too. I knew you were going to succeed, Abraham. I knew that you were going to be faithful. To, and now you know it too. But how did we get there? How did we, Abraham get to this place where he's totally, completely surrendered? Well, we learned last week, and we've been building this whole case and this whole uh, foundation, that it was by fellowship with God, by abiding in Christ, by learning of my character, Jesus would say. That's how I got you there. That's how you're able to launch out. It's because you know me in a different way now. That's how you're able to be obedient even when it hurts. It's because you know who I am and how much I love you. The most important part of God's character is that he loves you. He loves you. In, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. See, it works the same for us, as Paul says in Colossians, as it did for Abraham. Abraham had to get to know God, and when he got to know him, when he had fellowship with him, he could be surrendered. He could surrender to that. He could lay down his life because he depends on who God is. And Paul says, for us, it's the same thing. You get rooted and built up in him. You get rooted and built up in him. Once you're in him, once you start to learn who he is, what his character is like, once you start coming to church and you start hearing who God really is, and on a week-by-week -week basis, you're growing. And then your own personal devotions, he starts revealing to you who he is. 
in your life and for everyone, then you're, you're not only rooted, but you're built up. That's how we're built up. He doesn't say you get rooted in Jesus and then you're built up by your efforts. He never says that. It's always the same. It's always in him. It's in him. Another verse that correlates with this is 2 Peter 3.18, the last verse of, of Peter, where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge of him. Keep growing. That's how we grow. Grace is for growing. And how do we grow in grace? We get to know him. Fellowship. And that's what's been going on in Abraham's life. He has been getting to know him more and more. And he's been learning to believe God's promises. So not only getting to know his character, but then hearing a word and believing it. If God said it, God will do it, right? Believing just God's word. And these are still the two main factors in a healthy relationship with God today for you and for me. As we've been learning about grace, we framed it like this. There's two relational realities. There's humility and faith. And humility and faith are the two things that we, that, that um, encompass our relationship with God, a right relationship with God. What, what we do, that's what we do. Can you do other, anything else to be right with God, to please God, to serve God? No, those are the only two things, humility and faith. And neither one of them are works. They're simply relational realities. That's going to be on the test later. Relational realities. I want you to remember that. They're relational realities. Humility and faith. And here we see that when, we, when we're talking about the word fellowship, Abraham has been growing in fellowship. That's just another way to look at humility. That I need you. I want to be connected with you. I'm not okay alone. I'm not all right without you today, God. So fellowship is really linked with humility. And then believing promises is the other side that we looked at Abraham, what he's been growing in, and that's the same as faith. I put my trust and hope in you and in your word. That's faith, your promises. So how can you be a better Christian? How can you grow today in 2015? You grow in fellowship with God and in believing his promises. Or if you want to think about it this way, you grow in humility and faith. You know, we've been learning about this fellowship. And with Abraham last week, we saw there was a fellowship of separation. That's how you can grow in your relationship with the Lord. A fellowship of sacrifice, a, a fellowship of patience, a fellowship of hope, a fellowship of holiness, a fellowship of understanding his justice. And the last seventh level, the seventh step, the seventh fellowship we studied last week was the fellowship of suffering where God would allow us to get to know him through suffering, to experience what it was like to be Jesus on the cross, sacrificing everything he loved for the people he loved. And then we've learned two weeks ago about believing God's promises and how Abraham did that. And so we looked at, there was 8,000 of God's promises in the word of God. And some of the most important ones were that God promised that if we search for him, we will find him. He promised that his love will never fail. He promised that there will be a blessing for all who delight themselves in his word. He promised salvation to all who believe in what his son did on the cross. 
He promised that all things will work out for the good of his children. He promised comfort in our trials. He promised to finish the work he started in us. He promised us to have peace when we pray. All these are things he's, he's promised to supply our needs. All these are things that, as a believer, we got to know these promises. And how do you know them? You, you grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You grow in his character. And what does his character say? This is my promises, and I'm going to keep them. Because if God said it, God will do it. So we get to verse 13 now. So Abraham, he lifts his eyes, and he looks, and, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So a sacrifice still had to be made. But God provides a substitute, a, a replacement, instead of his son. Instead of his son. Abraham didn't see the substitute until he was completely surrendered and lifted his eyes. I want you to be mindful of those steps. He didn't see the replacement. He didn't see it until he was completely surrendered and he lifted his eyes. Then God revealed it and showed him that the sacrifice, the replacement, was already provided. It was already made. Because being surrendered, you know, it got him to the right place, but it didn't save him. Being surrendered doesn't save us. Uh, when he lifted his eyes and looked, there was God's provision. It was right there the whole time but he couldn't see it until he got in the place where he was surrendered. What if he would have said, I'm not going. I'm not going to go sacrifice my son. God has no right to demand that of me. God is a big meanie up in heaven, and I'm taking my ball and going home. He would not have been able to get to the place where he could lift up his eyes and see the provision of God right there in front of him. See, surrender is how we relate to God but it's not a good work that merits rewards. It's not. Surrender simply puts us in a place where we can be saved by the substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is grace. We got to remember that. That grace is given, but it's the grace that saves. It's the grace that saves. And grace is given to those who surrender but it's the grace that saves. Our surrender doesn't merit anything. It's what we should do. And he saves us through his grace. So salvation comes when we look to the work of Jesus on the cross, just like Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the salvation. This works when you first come to Jesus, and that's where we see the past tense saved or salvation. We see that in Ephesians 2.8 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, it's a gift of God. And after that, we can also experience a salvation in the present tense, being saved. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where he says, For the message of the cross was foolishness to those who are peri uh, perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's a past tense to salvation, there's a present tense to salvation, and there's even a future tense. So we'll look at another time. 
So we do like Peter says in, in 2 Peter 3.18, we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. We got to grow in that grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a reason why Peter threw that word Savior in there. Because you got to continually have him be your Savior. He needs to save you day by day because we have new challenges every day, right? Our flesh rises up in new ways every day. We have bad things happen to us every day. We need a Savior every day. And yes, he's forgiven you of your sins if you've come to know him in that way, if you've received that. But there's a daily salvation that's, that's available to us, just like, like Abraham did here. He, he surrendered and then he lifted his eyes to see the salvation of the Lord. He didn't want to kill his son, but he was surrendered to it. And God took care of it, took care of his problem. Why does God do that? Why is this important for us to study? It's because God loves being the hero. He loves being the hero. Everyone loves a hero. All our movies have a hero. Many of them have fancy superpowers, which God does. Have you seen the previous for Ant-Man? That doesn't seem like an awesome superpower to me. Here, let me just make you really small. Ants have never been... Never mind. <laughs> he's not a hero like an ant. No, he's, he's a real hero. He loves being seen as the hero. In fact, he even says it in the Exodus. You guys remember the story of Moses bringing out... Okay, look what he says in Exodus 14, 13. He says, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and what he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see them again. God loves for people to stand still and look at how cool he is. To look at his salvation. See, God likes to be a hero, so he saves. Superman always saves the person right before they hit the ground. When they're falling out of the building, right? It's because he likes to be seen. Just kidding. Well, God is that way. He wants to be seen as the hero because he knows there's no other hero. There's no one else that can save the children of Israel from the Egyptians at this point. So he says, I want you to look and look at me save you. Just watch me. Then go a little bit later in their history and, and they're living in the land of Israel and the king is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, he's there and, and he hears word that an army is coming from the east and it's got like 250,000 men or something like that. And his little, little country, little people, they're, it's impossible. It's impossible. So he goes and he prays to the Lord. And this is the response of the Lord to him. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, you will not need to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem? Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. See, again, God wants to be seen as the hero. He wants the credit. He wants the glory. We, we read that he will share his glory with no man, right? He is the Savior, and he requires to be seen as the hero. 
for the nation of Israel when they were starting, for the middle of the nation of Israel. Notice, what is his requirement for the people in both situations? Just stand there. Just sit back, get some popcorn, and watch the movie. Position yourselves and see the salvation of the Lord. That's awesome. That's, that's his message to us. But look, it goes even further, because it's not just Israel, but it's the whole world that God desires to be seen as the hero of. In, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, he says, And the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. All of them. He's like, that's his prophecy. That is God's goal, is to be the savior of all the world, every nation. God loves to be the hero. He loves it. And you might be thinking in your life, I need a hero. God's like, if you'll stand still and trust me, I'll be your hero. I'll come through for you. Learn of my character, grow in my grace, and sit back and watch what I'm going to do. But we get so antsy that we think we got to do something. Well, what do I do while I'm waiting? God's like, chill out. Get some popcorn. Trust me. And you'll see. So now we get to verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the Hebrew for the Lord will provide is Yahweh or Jehovah, the Y-H-W-H. We don't know the vowels, so we don't know how to say it, but it doesn't matter. It's God's name. The Lord, Jireh, will provide or has provided or will always provide. If there's one thing that Abraham understands, it's that God is the hero and not him. God is the provider and not him. Abraham is doing great at this. He's living a life of faith, trusting the Lord. And Abraham doesn't simply name this place my struggle or my trial or my victory or my triumph, the mountain where I got things done. That is not what he named. The hill of my efforts and my obedience. And we look at the story and we're like, all those could have worked. You could have named it any one of those. But no. Abraham instead names it Provision Hill. Provision Mountain. The place where God has provided and where he will always provide. The place the mountain, the hill where God has provided and where he always will provide. But the place where his grace is always found. For that's what grace is. Provision. God's resources for what we need. That's what grace is. And he says, it's, it, it, Moses, who's putting this all together and telling us the story of Abraham, he says, and it's unto this day, it's said unto this day, it's called that unto this day. If you go to the land of Moriah, where later we would have the city of Jerusalem, and you find the little hill where Isaac was sacrificed, it's still to this day, 400 years later, called the place where God provides and God will provide. Still called that. Apparently, all the Jews knew this mountain because he just puts it out there. You guys all know it's called that even to this day. 
And they knew that it was a place that God would provide two things for them. Two things. A sacrifice and grace. He would provide the sacrifice. He would do the work. He would pay the price to give us the grace, the benefits, the blessings. Both of those would come from this mountain. So the title of our sermon today is, Whose Mountain Is This Anyway? Abraham has done a great job of not taking possession of the mountain, but giving, understanding that this is the Lord's mountain. And see, the Christian life is all about God's grace. It's like, it's like a mountain of God's grace. It's a mountain with a name that points to his provision, a, a name like Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, that reminds us of God's work and not our own. Being called a Christian should speak loudly that I am a person who depends on God's provision for my life. Not that I do my best to imitate him. That is not what a Christian is. That is a fake Christian. Someone who tries to look like Jesus. A real Christian is someone who is filled with Jesus and his provision. It's a, it's a wild difference. But yet, I think the church, and I think many people in the church, have a misconception about what Christian means. And the world certainly has a misconception, don't they? I, this is what the, the definition of a Christian mountain is. The life of a Christian should be, I have renounced any dependence on the flesh. I've renounced any dependence on the flesh. I depend on God's provision for my life. My daily time with him, getting to know him, is my fellowship, my trials, and are just opportunities to demonstrate faith and draw on his resources that he offers at the cross. Why is your life so full of trials? So that you can show faith. So that you could obtain help from him. So that you could go to the place where the sacrifice is to be made and, and say, Lord, I need you right now, and he will provide for you. And we don't think of trials that way. We think of trials as something to get out of, to end as quickly as possible. i got to get out of this trial. It's so uncomfortable. And God's like, this is, you only have a few opportunities. You're only going to have a few trials, and then you're dead. Then how are you going to show faith? Up in heaven, there is no need for faith. Faith is something you only have to show and have to experience here on this earth. When you die... You don't have to have faith because you see it. You're going to be in it. Right now is when the time for faith is. This is our mountain. A life of God's works. Not our works. A life of God's blessings, God's glory, God's love. A mountain almost looks like an arrow pointing up, doesn't it? Every mountain I've seen, especially like the Matterhorn or Pikes Peak, they're just big arrows pointing up to Jesus. Now we're learning about these mountains, all right? And every time you look at a mountain, I want you to think, God's grace. On the mountain of Provision Hill, everything I need was accomplished. Everything I need was taken care of and given to me. And now when we have these trials that come into our life, we no longer face them in our own efforts, in our own abilities. We simply... Say, Lord, here is a trial. 
I'm going to go to you and I'm going to pray. I will not go to anyone else. No matter how great the trial is, no matter how small it is, I will go to no one else. I renounce all dependency upon my flesh, other people, the people that help me out sometimes. No, none of it. Jesus, you and you alone are my helper. Where does my help come from? I lift my eyes up to the? The Lord, the hill, the mountains, right? I lift my eyes up to the mountain? Oh my gosh, that was free. You're not even in my notes. Oh, so good. Okay, so now look, we pray, let your kingdom come, don't we? You guys know the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We could just as well pray that thy mount, let thy mountain come. Let your mountain come. And let me, let me, because prayer is very important to this. Prayer is where we, we kind of climb up this mountain. It's where, how we engage with this mountain. In Daniel chapter 2, there's a really crazy prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it, it has like this big like statue. And all of a sudden, out of the statue, this giant, uh, out of space, this giant mountain, stone, falls to the earth and smashes this statue. And I'll read it to you in Daniel 2.35. Then the iron, the clay the bronze and the silver and the gold, those were all the different parts of the statue, were all crushed together and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Just as this mountain, which is Jesus, in this prophecy, Jesus comes and he destroys all the earthly kingdoms, sets up his own kingdom, rules forever and ever. That's the main interpretation. But just as Jesus fills the whole earth at this time, his work and his power and his provision need to fill our whole lives. Crushing our fleshly kingdoms in our hearts. All these things that look like iron and clay and bronze and silver and gold in our hearts, all the things that we have built up to look impressive and within our human abilities, they need to be crushed by Jesus and then allow that life to just fill up the whole earth. Fill up the whole earth. And it says he's going to crush them until there's no trace of them. He will crush your dependency on your flesh until there's no trace of it. Why am I going through, through so many trials or maybe my heart is burdened and I'm hurting. Why does God, me to go, well, God want me to go through this? Well, it could be that he is in the process of crushing your dependence on yourself. He wants you to really get it through your head that it's all Jesus and it is not you. And yeah, you messed up 10 times yesterday. Who cares? This is about Jesus. You had a great day. Who cares? This is about Jesus. You've got to get your eyes off yourself and onto Jesus. He will crush it. But my self-reliance is like, it's like a huge mountain right now. I, I don't know if I feel like I can stop being self-dependent. What do I do then? Pray. Pray. Let your kingdom come. Let my kingdom, my statue, my mountain, let my stuff go away. Jesus, let your kingdom come. Pray. 
Jesus goes on in Mark chapter 11. This is crazy how this all fits together. In Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus answered, when he's talking about prayer, this praying, he says, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, ha <laughs> be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Is the mountain of your life known for your works? When people observe you and, and they observe the mountain of your life, which is just all of your life and everything it looks like, is it you that they see? Is it your efforts? Is it your college degrees? Is it your accomplishments that is observed by the world? Your sacrifices, your successes, or even your failures? If it is, that's okay. Then pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray that His kingdom come. Pray that that mountain come out of space and crush you. Pray. Ask. Believe that God will take that mountain and he will throw it into the sea for you. That life that is known for you, that life that is known for your works, pray that it goes away, that you decrease and that he increases. And he will establish a new mountain. A mountain that has a new name. A name of God provides. God does it. God is faithful. God gets the glory. That's awesome. I used to think, when it came to this verse in Mark 11, that, that this mountain was only specific sins. That, that God would set you free of a sin, no matter how impossible it might be in your heart. That if you struggle with this, if you're addicted to that, that's a mountain in your heart, and you just need to pray and trust the Lord, and God will cast it into the sea. But now I think it's way bigger than that. I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think it's way bigger than that. I think what Jesus is actually talking about is that God wants to destroy the entire self-dependent system working in our hearts. He wants to destroy it all by faith. He wants to ruin it all so that there's no trace, so that one sin can't just hang out in one part of our heart. No, he wants the whole system of self-sufficiency done away with. And he wants to build a new mountain that will never be moved. A new mountain that is all his work and none of ours. How do we get that? Well, what did this verse say? Ask him and don't doubt. Say, Lord, I am done trusting in myself. I renounce that. I, I, I cast it away from me by faith. And so what do I do when I get in the morning? I got to be in your word. I got to trust you when the challenge comes into my life. I got to search the word for your promise that has to do with this challenge. And I got to trust it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to stand there and say, God says this. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 9. 
we're going to see some, uh, another just amazing correlation in this. This new mountain that is all his work and none of our work is going to be built in our lives as we renounce our dependency on the flesh and come to him in humility and faith. In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, we're going to start and it says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained or been given to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, or basically we could say uh, they were living on a mountain called my efforts, my ability to keep the law. They have not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Which is what? By trusting in God's provision. He says here that the reason Israel failed to get righteousness, to be able to be right in God's sight, even though they tried really, really, really hard, was because they didn't go to the right mountain. They were on a mountain of my works, my, my efforts, and instead they needed to be trusting in God's provision or doing it by faith. His mountain of God provides. God does it when you have faith. But it says, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they, listen, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. A stone is just a rock, a mountain that hasn't grown up yet. We see these growing mountains in Daniel. This just grew. People can't even start trusting in Jesus when they're trying to do things in their own strength. And that's why you hear all the time, surrender to Jesus, come to Jesus, stop trying. You hear it all the time. Because you can't even come, start to trust Jesus when you're still trying to do it in your own strength. Nope. We need to surrender that we can't change, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't become a better person, that we can't try hard enough to make God happy or our spouse happy or even our own consciences happy. We need to surrender that only one thing works, Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice does work. That sacrifice of substitute, that ram that Abraham saw when he lifted his eyes. It was just another picture of Jesus, Jesus on the cross. Then we get grace, God's blessings, God's fruitfulness, God's mountain appears in our life. It grows in our life. And we see this now in verse 15 back in our text in Genesis chapter 22. We see the angel of the Lord Jesus all to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And, and he said, Jesus says, by myself, I have sworn, which means I don't need anything from you, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and you've not withheld your son, your only son. So he's saying, I don't need anything from you, but I love your trust. I love the fact that you trust me, Abraham. So he says, verse 17, blessing, I will bless you. 
and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants. As the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, your and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. This is, when you see this multiplying, I will multiply you, and blessing, I will bless you, this uh, is, a, is a Hebrew idiom that, where we get grace upon grace. There is no end to how much I'm going to bless you. There is no end to how much I'm going to multiply you. There is no end to how much grace I'm going to show you. There is no running out of resources. There is no missing out on something because God provides everything and he never stops providing it. I will not fail you. There will not be missing provision one day when you're going through a trial and you come to the Lord and depend on his promise. There will not be a day where it doesn't come through for you. It happens every time when you call on the name of the Lord. He answers. Tell him. That's right. <clears throat> you will not go to the ATM of my grace and come back empty-handed. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You cannot be dominated by sin anymore. All of the weakness that Adam passed into your genes is broken by my blessings, utterly overwhelmed by how much I'm going to bless you because you came to me in sacrifice. You received my sacrifice substitution. You trusted me. Because you trusted me, there is no end to my blessings on you. You have no idea how much I'm going to bless you. Now, verse 18, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Jesus, the Messiah, will come from your body, your descendants, and he will bring complete blessing to every nation in the world. He will open up God's grace to any person that will come. Right now, it's the people of Israel. You have to go through that way, but there will be a day where Jesus will open it up. And we saw that happen 2,000 years ago when all the world is now open to receive these same blessings. So verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. So Abraham's prophecy is fulfilled. What prophecy? Last week we saw that Abraham showed up on this mountain and he's like, the lad and I will go off yonder and worship and then we're going to come back to you. Him and I together, we're coming back to you. A prophecy. He had no reason to believe that except God's promise. But he believed God's promise. Why does his prophecy come true? Because he spoke it in faith. Anything that you do, depending upon God keeping his promises is a guarantee. It is guaranteed it's going to be fulfilled. You can prophesy. It's easy. You just proclaim one of God's promises, and then you believe it and stand upon it. That's what prophecy is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to earnestly desire that you may prophesy, for it benefits the church greatly. He says, prophesy, people. How, well, I really want to prophesy. How do I do it? Read your Bible. Find a promise. Proclaim it and stand upon it. Boom. The church is now edified, greatly blessed. Speak God's promises to one another. Pray that God's Spirit gives you a promise in your time of reading and studying the Bible that you can share with a brother or sister. I want you all texting each other furiously during the week. Here's a promise. Maybe this is for you. The Spirit gave me this for you. You were on my mind. You were on my heart. You know what? If you're wrong, let's say you just were totally wrong and just 
Like, they're like, I, no one's going to hate you. Everyone's going to be like, wow, they really love me. This has nothing to do with my life, but maybe it will someday. You know, we just step in faith and believe that God is speaking. Have you guys ever been praying for someone and then a verse just came in your mind? It happens. It does happen. And that's the time when you pick up your phone, you, you get in your car, you drive to him, and you tell him that. Because that is a prophecy. That is something that God has given you for that person. Now, if it's something like you're going to die in three days or something, talk to me about that first. But, but be led by the Spirit. <laughs> Ministry is simply inviting other people to live on the mountain of God's faithfulness with you. That's what ministry is, guys. Saying, hey, I'm on this hill called God's provision. God will provide. It's where I hang out. You want to come up here with me? The weather's awesome. Last verse we're going to end with. In fact, would you all stand up with me? We're going to... Um, we're going to take communion, and then we are going to feast on some pig. Thank God we're Gentiles. And uh, so we're going to, during these last couple songs, you know, we're just going to come down. We're going to engage with what Jesus is doing in our hearts by remembering his promise, his work on the cross, the ram. Maybe you just think of a picture of a ram in your mind being burnt and killed and pierced as you take this, this um, you know, communion. Communion is like a celebration that we can believe God's promises, that, that everything we just said is actually true. It's the God-ordained fireworks that we can celebrate with. Fourth of July is like, everyone can do fireworks, right? Unless you like in city limits. But this is the God-ordained celebration that we can trust and believe the promises that God has just given us. Why? Communion. It points us to what Jesus did. God says, celebrate it. Every time you eat it, celebrate and remember. So this last verse we're going to read is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3 and 4. And it says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to God. He is the rock. The mountain. He is the rock. His works are perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's the mountain we live on. And that's the God that we praise as we come up and, and, uh, and sing these last songs. And we're going to pray, you know, we proclaim the name of our Lord. He does all this for us. And I just pray that our mountain is known for his name. The scripture, one more thing. The scripture says, whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he's there, right? That's in his character, understanding, learning of his character, learning his, who he is. When we're gathered in his name, in that same character, he's there with us. So Jesus, we know that you're here with us right now. And Lord, we drink deeply of the well of your spirit. We ask that you would pour into us your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would give us this grace and the provision that you have promised. And Lord, in the various circumstances of each one of our lives, I pray that we would see the promise 
And if we can't see it ourselves, I pray, Jesus, that you would give a brother or sister the promise in prophecy towards us. That you would put our heart on someone else's heart. And I pray that all of us in here who know you and are walking, we would be sensitive to when your spirit would like to prophesy through us. That we would seek to be used in prophecy. Reminding people of the promises of Jesus. Calling them to live on the mountain of God's provision with us. Jesus, I thank you for my beloved family here. Lord, we would be lost without each other. And how your spirit works in each of our lives. And Lord, I I thank you for um, those who have been serving and cooking and getting ready for this um, time of breaking bread that we're going to have. Lord, I pray that you would bless our food and bless our time together. Lord, I pray that our our time of communion, Lord, we would solidify our trust in you. That as you give us all these promises, you give us also the guarantee, which is Jesus on the cross, the substitute. Lord God, I pray for everyone in here. Lord, if there's a, a, a soul that has not yet come to you that has not yet become concerned about where they stand with you Lord I pray that you would move in our hearts and those who are not yet saved that they would be terrified of where they're at without you that they would look at their own soul and say I'm not ready I'm not right with God and that they would surrender their own self-dependency their self-reliance and they would look their eyes up to the cross and see the substitutes that is available to them. And Jesus, I pray that you would do this work and we know that you hear our prayers. We know that you will do this. We trust you, Lord. We pray, um, Jesus, that you would receive all the glory in our lives and in our mountains. In your name we pray, amen.